Welcome to Digging a Hole, the legal theory podcast. On this podcast, my co-host Sam Moyne and I talk about legal theory and whatever else is on our mind. But today we have a very special episode. We're doing an Ask Me Anything, or really an Ask Us Anything, an AUA, where we're going to just answer questions that you, the listeners, have asked us. Um, uh, Sam, are you? Uh, you've only had a briefly a brief chance to review these questions. Are you uh, nervous, excited, or what? I'm interested in you know the the diversity of these things, which will take us from the sublime to the ridiculous, and you know I'm in for it. Ah, so from the sublime to the ridiculous, it's um, it's uh, it's uh, it sounds very on brand for us. So it's okay. <laughs> All right, so let's get started. Um, actually, let's take a break, and then we'll come back. We'll come right back with our questions. All right, we're back. So our very first question for our Ask Us Anything episode comes from Andrew Verstein, a really, a really terrific professor uh, of corporate law at UCLA. And he asked a long question, but we're going to shorten it a little bit. And the question basically takes the form of, how do you read individual articles or sets of articles when you are assessing a candidate for high purpose of hiring or otherwise assessing their scholarly potential or career? Um, uh he, um, he notes that in, when reading people's articles for hiring purposes, an article's strengths can turn into the author's weaknesses, say when a detailed analysis renders an article bulletproof but suggests the author is not doesn't have grand enough ambitions, or vice versa, when an article's failure to engage with certain counterarguments indicates the author's uh, uh, judgment uh, that such counterarguments um, uh, gain politically from being by being named. Um so maybe the way he what he argues is that our articles um, different from the sum of their parts. So Sam, when you're interested in assessing a candidate either for hiring or other purposes, how do you read their articles? I think it's a great question, but I, I'm, I'm I don't think I have a straight answer. So I, I I think I would distinguish between entry level candidates or maybe junior candidates in general, and you know everyone else like laterals that we might consider. With the proviso that you know, I'm a I'm a neophyte law professor myself, and I'm still learning uh, the the trade. So when I was the a junior appointments chair at, at Yale a, a few years ago, which I tried to you know avoid, uh, I told the dean that I'd never sought or gotten a junior job myself, and so wasn't really you know in in the right headspace to evaluate these job talk papers, you know, I, I failed obviously, but then I, 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 it took me a a while to realize that this was a distinct genre and all of them seemed written for the same audience, which was not only not me, but it wasn't clear, um, that they were kind of aiming in, in these job talk papers to to kind of convince the high end and the low end of the entry level market so much as the middle. And so you really had to, you know, kind of try to take a guess about, you know, what kind of person this was based on the genre. And I felt when I met them, um, I learned so much more at the so-called meat market from probing them about whether they had you know, written this job talk paper kind of as a, you know, part of the professionalizing drill or whether it really represented the way their minds work. Um, Now, of course, within that, there was a huge amount of variety. And, you know, sometimes it's so outside your field that you you really, um, unless you ask others, have to judge on, 
you know, criteria, like, does it seem to fit a formula? Does the empirical work look good? Um, is there, is the frame, which is supposed to appeal to everyone, you know, convincing, um, you say, if it's making a normative argument, which I can evaluate, even though the kind of follow through, I can't, when I, when I turn to a lateral candidate, I mean, I think I'm entitled to ask, you know, does this person seem interesting? And, you know, we, we have so many people pass through David, where we, we can have debates about whether the article, you know, is brilliant or not, but we, we don't kind of ask whether they're the problem is that they're following the formula. Um, it's them. We know it's them. It's what they've chosen to present. And we can, you know, we can, we can ask, is this an, a creative person? Is this person good at what they're doing in a, in a much more direct way? So that's kind of a long winded answer, but it's sort of saying, I think we have to disaggregate what kind of person we're evaluating before we talk about the criteria. Yeah. I think it's definitely harder with entry levels. I have to say my basic attitude towards this is extremely straightforward, which is that I, I, I kind of, I'm going to reject Andrew's question in some ways, which is that when I assess candidates or again, assess scholars broadly, I just assess articles and I add. Um, and the my basic reasoning for that is that when you attempt to map on things like trajectory, is someone going to get better or, um, uh, any other factor that you're attempting to do sus break apart in the way uh, that uh, people suggest um, that we end up inferring way too much and it kind of projecting way too much about ourselves on to them. I mean, if we had good like Bill James or Nate Silver style projection systems for scholars, I don't even know what that would look like. Then you could attempt to figure out something about what kind of scholar someone's going to become based on what they've done before. Um, but right now, I think that anytime we um, we uh, we attempt to like go beyond the papers. Is this good? However, we're assessing articles to something about candidates that um, we're extremely likely, more likely to um, uh, put in things that we probably oughtn't be considering. So do we like them? Are they like us? That kind of thing. Um, and so when I assess a candidate for a job purposes, I just read everything they've written. Um, and for juniors at this point, it's that's also quite a lot. Never mind for laterals, like when Sam is Jesus. Um, it was a lot, you know. Um, and then you just rate it all and add, and you give more credit to things that are more recent because that's uh, you know where they are now. But other than that, I think that for the most part, uh, any effort to kind of go beneath the papers um, uh, is uh, likely to be a mistake. Um, uh, the thing I the 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 quote I think about when thinking when talking about this is the great quote from the movie Barcelona, um, where one character says the other. I understand the subtext, I mean, hidden import of some kind. But what is that thing that is above the subtext? That which is actually said. The other character says the text, and the other character responds. Uh, but we don't talk about that enough. That's true, but we don't talk about it enough. And that's basically where I am on reading candidates, which is you just should just take the articles. Are they good? And add them up. I think that's true, but I mean. You know, it, to me, there there are a lot of other considerations um, that fairly enter, especially in an age when we we you know care so much about diversifying the faculty, and that could be also along ideological lines. All right, so I'll I'll ask you uh, the second question since you have authority to answer it, and I'll just give you my you know uneducated opinion once you're done. And the question is from A. X. Weiss. And it goes as follows. Is it ethical to move into a gentrifying neighborhood? 
And the answer is, of course, um, it would be it's a, it's kind of a strange question. I mean, it's an inter- I mean, it's a not uncommonly posed question, um, but it's to me, it's it mis- it kind of is a based on some kind of misunderstanding, which is that you could ask the question differently, which is it is it ethical to stay in segregated neighborhoods? Um, uh, because it's it's actually the same question, right? Um, and the um, the I think that when moving into a diverse area, whether it's gentrifying or just kind of stably diverse, uh, there there are some ethical things about kind of not shaking up community norms too much, or at least you know kind of or, or impo- kind of uh, imposing your own attitudes. But I think that just generally falls onto like uh, don't be an asshole um, uh, type t- category. But on some level, the um, the the uh, there's nothing. I don't think there's any, we can pose on people any moral requirement that they um, uh, don't move to places that they uh, would prefer to for whatever reason. Um, uh, I think, I mean, I think one of the ironies, of course, is that if we had enough housing in non-gentrifying neighborhoods and existing rich neighborhoods, we allowed more building in the Greenwiches and Greenwich villages of the world, um, we'd just see a lot less neighborhood change. And that might be for bad as well as for good. So, I mean, the the kind of stylized fact that people mostly talk about is that most neighborhoods don't change at all. So gentrification is really happening in a very small fringe of neighborhoods um, in in most cities that most rich areas stay rich and most poor areas stay poor. And uh, the um, it's not clear that, um, I mean, that we should find the transition to be particularly problematic. Um, uh, but it's also clear that if you are do find it problematic, the solution to getting people not to move into Bushwick is to build housing on the Upper East Side. Most rich people, and I say this as you know, we're in you know uh, very privileged people ourselves, um, is uh, is are extremely boring in their tastes and want to be surrounded by other people who are just like them. Um, that's true for actually most population, you know. And so it is a um, it is uh, it is a that's the most likely. So like. That's a long way to answer the question. So they might, but the, the the short answer is no. I mean, I'll probe your answer a little. I mean, I basically agree with where you came out, which sounded like you were saying that we do need to think about how we square as a moral, um, a matter of moral responsibility, our individual choices with overall kind of structural justice, however we might interpret it. And it sounds like you're conceding that. Um, if, if it if it happens that you know personal choices have an, a, a you know a, an unseemly effect, um, for example, you know to change you know the decision you and I might choose to send our children to private schools, uh, even though we know that if everyone with similar means does it, it, the public schools take a hit, which you know is you know, all things being equal. And if you believe in, you know, state funded and run education bad. Um, And so, you know, how can you then compensate for the fact that you have an individual choice and you have one life to live with your participation and, you know, a long history and an unjust society, you know, you can counteract your choice by supporting policies uh, that somehow compensate for your immorality. Um, and yeah, in, so in, I don't, I don't think I accept that set right, at all, actually. All right. um, uh, but I mean, look, I mean, I think basically like, like I'm a liberal, um, and, uh, and I think that we make our choices to, you know, for our, you know, and that our relation to the state is, 
uh, is an individual one relative to the state. And so like I, that's not my, my, the way I approach the question, I guess what I would say is, uh, that, um, that like we, we do share responsibilities towards one another in terms of our individual person to person relationships that require us to do, you know, you know, like I, and I, kind of to try to fit in with others in kind of ordinary social ways. And I think that that's all well and good. Um, but I, I don't, what you just said, I don't agree with at all. Um, uh, but um, I just don't think I do. Um, well, I just said, uh, you know, I, I was trying to be neutral about what, you know, how, how you define the structural injustice. And it sounds like you and I might disagree and I might think, well, actually I'm implicated in the whole history of like racialized class oppression in this country, which is really what we're talking about when you get to public schooling or neighborhood segregation de facto. And yeah, for sure. I guess what I'd say is that, I mean, I think we're, we're inheritors of a great deal. Um, uh, but um, I think that we have uh, political responsibilities to be for good things and not for bad things. Um, uh, and that the question of, you know, our, where, what neighborhood we move into is just, is a, is a, is a, is a separate question. And I think that it's also, it's a, it leads to a very strange politics if you attempt to personalize uh, these questions, because it actually, I think, uh, removes political energy. So the desire to, you know, like, I'm going to get a green, you know, a, a, I don't know, like I'm going to recycle or something or get uh, uh, kind of personal rather than caring about, you know, voting for carbon taxes or whatever. And I think that that is a, uh, uh, it is much more likely that people attempt to absolve their sins through personal action than they attempt, than they will in fact address them in any meaningful way. Um, there are no moral offsets um, unless you're, uh, you know, you know, buying your way out of hell or something. Um, all right. Okay, that we got that got serious quick. So let's uh let's let's mix it up here. Uh Will Puff Web Webster, one of my favorite students, asks, what is one pie in the sky and one more plausible redesign that would make that you would make to the structure of American governance to move it towards your desired outcomes? Uh you know, pie in the sky, I I think I would say abolish the states. If the the question is directed towards the, 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 this country. Uh, so at that level, although I think, like, you know, the global injustice is much bigger than American injustice, but if we're talking about uh, the American social contract, I think abolishing the States would be a, a, a dream I would harbor, um, is, is, is adding, um, adding States, you know, pie in the sky. Cause I, I mean, I it's lesser, more plausible. It's, it, yeah. it, it's, it's ambitious, but far less ambitious than actually abolishing the States. And if you think that we're kind of hung up right now, institutionally, um, you know, given the horrendous constitution and it, the entrenchment of, you know, of basically a minority rule through it, the, the only way out is, you know, to, cite the famous Harvard Law note, packing the union. And um, I, I think it's actionable. And, you know, it, it would be, it would be feasible on some credible time horizon, uh, unlike, you know, actually abolishing the states. And so I'm going to put that in my second category. Yeah. What about you? So, um, 
So I would say that one thing is that Sam and I both wrote uh, proposed constitutional amendments for the New York Times that you can read. I think they're both pretty pie in the sky, all things told. Um, So I'm going to just focus on... uh, on once it's a little pie in the sky also, but it's um, uh, which and it's also about states, but it is less um, about uh, structural constitutional change, um, which is um, that I, I one thing that's been a center of a lot of my research is that uh, our states don't do great do great state governments don't do well at expressing kind of authentic state preference or even the preferences of state voters about the things states do. People use state elections to express things about national politics. Um, and I think that I proposed with Chris Elmendorf, a whole variety of kind of seemingly minor state constitu- state legal changes and potentially a few like reinterpretations of a few constitutional doctrines that would uh, uh, result in the creation of more state and local specific political parties. And that one of the, um, the idea here is that uh, we have this structure of governance that you can read about, you learn about in elementary school or whatever, but our political practice doesn't match it very well. And we don't have institutions that are built to kind of make states uh, work um, as representing something that is distinct from uh, national politics. And as a result, we've given a lot of authority to a bunch of officials who we don't actually pay any attention to what they do. That we just had this kind of very, very, you know, titanic Virginia election. Um, and most of that was driven by whether Joe Biden was popular and not what the people in the Virginia legislature did. There's a little bit about education that might have been, that's relevant. That's an interesting set of questions, but it's a, um, but the, the fact that the New Jersey election went basically had the exact same voter swing suggests that something national was happening. And uh, like to the extent we do have states, and if Sam's reforms aren't adopted, we probably ought to attempt to get the ends out of them that we would like, and we are not currently doing so. So state-specific political parties is my answer. Great. Okay, so I, I, I'm not sure where to go, but maybe I'll ask Izzy, Izzy's question, our, our okay, former great. producer. Um which is a great one and, and will draw, I think, an, a, a surprising answer for me. Uh, but uh, you get to answer first. Yeah. It's which is cooler, the Supreme Court of the United States or the Federal Reserve? Oh, is this even really a question? Of course the Federal Reserve is cooler. Um, and for the last 30 years, it's obviously been much more important, to tell you the truth. I mean, I don't think there's a real a real debate about that. Um, uh, um, its work is much more interesting as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, I wish Fed shares had clerkships for our students. I think that would be a, or it would be a, not just our students, but econ student, that kind of thing. I would think it would be a salutary development. Um, uh, the... Um, the Fred Shower had a famous uh, law review article. I we keep saying famous, like it's they're not Taylor Swift famous, but they're you know well known. Um, that argued the Supreme Court just isn't that important if you look at the things Americans care about. And now, if the Supreme Court makes a big abortion decision, this will that will obviously be different. And there's certainly some very important decisions they made on marriage equality and on um, kind of changing Obamacare. And so I don't want to say, but the Federal Reserve really has a huge dramatic effect on our lives in a day-to-day way, our prices on employment, on they basically saved the global economy uh, last spring. Um, so Federal Reserve, much cooler. So, I, you know, I'm going to give the opposite answer, but I, it's, it's kind of, be, you know, be, because I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, the Supreme Court is cooler just because in spite of the fact that I've devoted, you know, a year or two uh, towards hectoring, you know, people to hate it, um, it's it's just less noxious um, because it's less important and powerful. Um, 
what what those of us who are are arguing for Supreme Court reform are are angry about, you know, consist of very few cases. Um, and, you know, mostly they're in the realm of constitutional cases, which are not that numerous relative to statutory ones. So we do need to kind of look carefully at what the court's doing there. Um, and either in both domains, a tiny number of like cases that, uh, you know, are in, indefensible or radioactive. Um, wh- whereas it seems as if the Fed is, is if you're, if you think that, you know, something has happened in the late 20th century, a kind of technocratic revolution of which juristocracy is part, but a small part, then the Fed turns out to be much more central to the consolidation of elite power. Um, and, you know, since we're sometimes we recommend books, I just want to recommend to Izzy uh, Alistair Roberts' book, The Logic of Discipline, which is an amazing story about um, the, th- this kind of general phenomenon. I think it's it's basically about the rise of central banks and and how they they emerge kind of in response to various fears of the people. And so, if you're a Democrat, I think you have problems with both the Fed and the Supreme Court. But the Fed, I think, is has assumed a lot more power. And we need to think about what its role is in a democracy equally as much and maybe more than the Supreme Court's. Of course, you you some of the things you are in favor of the Supreme are already true for the Fed, right? So there no term limits, you know, like let not I mean not term limits, but like uh, timed timed terms. Um, Correct. Uh, of course, there are a few abominations there. I mean, I, I mean there's there's variety sets of arguments about keeping the kind of regional uh, reserve banks, uh, in, and I I honestly Peter Conti Brown has completely convinced me that those don't make any sense. Right. Um. Uh, um. Uh, and uh, so uh, that's where I am on that. But uh, it's um it is. Uh, I think I mean the way I guess where we we may we may part ter- is that that uh, some degree of technocracy is inevitable in these spheres and, and right. it's um, uh, uh, it, the world's a complicated place um, uh, and um, the uh, so yeah no so, there's there's yeah, defensible I think, I think expertise we, but there's also a politics of expertise and there's neoliberalism to which you know with, with which we, I think we can tightly tether. Um, as like a core element of the story, the the rise of central banking power across the world. So, and like austerity, where did it come from? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, especially with, you know, the inflationary risks we're facing, we can talk about, you know, Paul Volcker and like what, what, what has happened in the relation of elites and workers in the past half century? Where did Donald Trump come from? You know, the Fed is not outside that story. It's I agree, but here's what I'd say: is that if the question is like, what's cooler? Uh, what's I mean, that? Well, I I'm think saying they both suck, thing, but the 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 Fed know, is less cool because because more grievously injurious to humanity. Uh, well, there you go. It's a, what I would say is that I think that the um, the um, at least for, from the perspective of legal scholarship, particularly um, uh, uh, the studying the Fed is much cooler because um, it is which is much less done, um, uh, and um, it is a, it is something that we should spend. I mean, I, we can disagree on uh, on a lot there. Um, oh no, but, but we both we, think we should have scholars of the Fed and not have like oh, umpteen I'm, con law. Professors oh my God, and, and more, more, 100%. much more attention to like macroeconomic governance and like ha- what what forms of power it involves over ordinary people. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm a regular participant in the Law and Macro Conference. Um, I support that 100%. All right. So now we're going to steal a segment from, uh, from uh, Tyler Cowen and do our under, overrated and underrated segment. So this is a speed round, Sam. So get ready. You ready? I'm ready. I've been ready. Okay. International law is an academic discipline. Overrated or underrated? Overrated. Why? Well, I I think that um, there is at, at least a, as it's conceived in the United States, it, it, and really more broadly, it's it's much less important than those in the field think. Um, and I think that the work tends to be, you know, less less earth shattering and less useful um, for humanity. Um, certainly than those in the field think and and so and 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 then many think um and so i i would think that you know while i'm for hiring more international law profs um i don't think that it is the the most important field um which is partly why i'm trying to get out of it which the one thing i'd say is that uh private international law so studying the bond market um, and uh, the IMF and all of the parts of the international financial regime, um, both private, both private and kind of the international, I, I think is very important and is under. I agree, and um, so uh, that, that but, there is where I would hire because it's it, it's 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 crucial that law schools teach private international law. In the '90s, we didn't take it seriously. We thought you know humanitarian intervention and human rights were were going to you know ch- change world order and we kind of missed the point that it was actually economics that was changing world order and we didn't study private international law which was our mistake which i hope people don't repeat yeah. effective altruism overrated or underrated i mean over, overrated to an extraordinary extent it's evil i mean it it's it's not it, it's not exactly correct to say it's overrated because I wouldn't rate it hot, you know at, at good at but to, to well, any it's, extent it's what someone else rates it but yeah so yeah so but you think what I would say is I think that like considering the uh, effect of your decisions in when giving away money is a very valuable thing and that the um, that some of the outgrowths of effective altruism have been remarkably beneficial so kind of the giving people directly money move things um, and the focus on like bed nets and the kind of a reading of and that kind of dealing with the principal agent problems in nonprofits is also been a, a real salutary thing like, I'm not super into the AI as um, you know like end of the world type stuff right. um, but I think um that like assessing the nonprofit sector and look and thinking really dramatically about like why you're giving money to whom is um, is extremely valuable. So I would say underrated. I would say you know effective action is always better than ineffective action. But the question is what action? And you know many of us think, and I would recommend this this scholarship of Amiya Srinivasan in the London Review of Books on this that it's it's basically a, a compensation for. Uh, not doing kind of structural justice on a global scale. And so it's kind of, it functions. And I think very effectively as a kind of prop for a philanthropic capitalist kind of frame for kind of world morality. And so, you know, let's, let's, let's take it down a few pegs. Okay. Um, the bar exam uh, and the broader system of lawyer credentialing overrated or underrated. You know, I didn't take the bar, David. So I, 
I don't really have an in on this one. Um, I yeah, mean, I've it seems like we ought to credential people to make sure they learn law somewhere, if not in law school. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's um, probably overrated, but it's not evil. Yeah. So my position is that for the most part, um, most occupational licensing rules, of which this is one of the worst. Um, are quite evil. And so I don't, it's, um, it's, uh, I think they are rated badly and they are in fact worse than they are rated. Um, that huge swaths of what lawyers do can be done by people, other people, um, either by kind of some of the new technological innovations or, uh, and that this is for the good. We have a wide undersupply of legal services in America, at least. And I assume it's true in most of the world also. Um, as much of the developed world, um, lots of people don't have access to legal services that they could really use. Simple contra- advice on contracts, you know, on search, um, uh, and the evidence on occupational licensing and its effect on quality is, let's just say, mixed to almost to be potentially zero. And so, I forge like I think there's a real case for. Um, certain requirements for certain aspects of legal practice, just like I think there are for certain aspects of medical practice, but that in all in in all rel- along all relevant uh, 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 questions, uh, a greater liberalization seems to me to be uh, uh, something that would both be good for growth and equity. Now, so the last one I've got for you, and this one, I, this is one I that. Uh, uh, Twail, I wish I'd be just a third world approach, third world approaches to international law, um, uh, overrated or underrated? Oh, extremely underrated. I mean, it's, it's the international law equivalent of, of critical race theory. And if there was more twail, I, I would say international law scholarship is, is underrated because, you know, twail is basically trying to say that we should face, you know, kind of frontally just the the fact that the world is organized around kind of you know um post-imperial lines and there there are racialized hierarchies now at a world scale um without which we can't make sense of like any of the doctrines of international law like what what are the laws permitting uh, you know, invasion of one place rather than another. My, my recent book um, is actually about the partial deracialization of the rules concerning what you can do when you're fighting. But it, along the way, it tries to argue that the in their origins, these rules were deeply racialized um, and bound up with with empire. So, I mean, I, I I'm actually a fellow traveler of Twail. And so I'm probably not the right person to ask, but I wish I wish we had more of it in U.S. law schools because it's generally not been a U.S. phenomenon. Um, so then we have a question that completely follows on from this one. So it's really good. It's not an overrated or underrated question, which is what ratio of reviews misunderstood the point of your recent book, Humane? I think, you know, they all understood it. Um, the question is what they said in response. And some were were kind of um let's say intentionally obtuse um in order to avoid confronting the argument uh, and and I, I say that because there were a few reviews including one of the more prominent ones in the new yorker magazine that basically uh, suggested that if if i was raising questions politely and respectfully about the humanization of warfare it must be the only reason could be that I support more brutal war, um, as if, you know, 
those were the two options on the menu rather than just having a few uh, less wars. Um, so I, I don't, yeah, I don't think I was treated unfairly in the sense that um, I, it, it's pretty clear that most people kind of get what's at stake. There, there, I was pressured, I think, very fairly and significantly about what what claim I was making, whether it's causal, how I would prove it. We got into that on an earlier episode, and you know, I'm 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 chastened by the experience of the reviews, but not because I think that it the book was misunderstood. Is that fair? So, I mean, do you agree with that? Oh yeah, no, I th- I agree. I thought the reviews, um, like the fact that it annoyed people so much, um, uh, was like kind of proof, kind of was like a proof of concept for the book, which is that like it really was raising challenging questions. I I'm gonna offer something here, which is kind of my universal field theory of Sam Moyn. See what you think about it. So. My idea of what you were the three most recent projects, I don't want to go back too far, but the the human rights book, Humane, and the Supreme Court stuff, is that the central question you're taking up is what are the responsibilities of left intellectuals um, across all three projects? And the question you're after in all of them is to what does it mean to be uh, progressive in some fundamental way? So in human rights, the human rights stuff, it's like, is... Um, uh, uh, is being in favor of human rights a the the progressive thing to be, or the left thing to be, or however you want to think about that question, or is it, it a dodge from what the real responsibilities of a good leftist would be, which is toward to promote international socialism or something? And then similarly in humane, is the is a good leftist in favor of more humane war, but rather, or is it in favor of less war? And similarly in the Supreme Court, is a good leftist in favor of good liberal judicial outcomes, or in favor of no um, uh, no Supreme Court or kind of more democratic outcomes. And that the central question you're after is like a, a, a debate with your peers about what your, like, like who is best capturing the responsibilities of people who, with a similar professed set of politics. And the central challenge, I think, or the best challenge to all three projects is that that person that you're challenging is maybe not the only actor or the most important actor in the system. That that like the character left out of all three is like Paul Wolfowitz in the war book, in um, in the human rights book. It's, I don't know, Jamie Dimon, some you know, um, and in the um, in the in the Supreme Court book, it's like Mitch McConnell or something like that. In, w- in which the questions are like not about who, and for them, your arguments don't do very much. So, what do you think about universal theory of? And so, those are the best criticisms. I think the ones you acknowledge the most. Sure. Three of them. No, I mean, so I think, think that your theory is brilliant, and it, it has me dead to rights. And the question is whether the, the stance can be justified. I mean. Partly it's biographically rooted, which isn't a defense, it's an explanation, which is that if you're in your 20s at the end of history and you have, you're, you're instructed by a bunch of liberals who assure you that they're good people um, and adopt all of these positions and yet the world gets worse, you then have to wonder, um, were they correct? Did they make a mistake? Were they, were they you know, claiming virtue in a, a world in which they permitted too much vice. And so I'm just trying to, you know, ask that question in a series of ways. And, um, you know, I, I, I totally get that, like they, their central defense is that they were, they were opposing the real demons, you know, those committing genocide or those, you know, um, 
you know, trying to push through the pro-life policies or whatever in, you know, what, in whatever setting the, the equivalent. And I guess, um, I, I think that the, the, then the question would have to be, well, what does it take to face those folks down? Um, or have excessive compromises been made with their power and their views over time? And do we need, you know, a, a different baseline, one, one further left? Um, and, you know, that's hard to settle, but it, it's part of the, the, the only hope for salvaging my position across all these things is, is the claim that we actually have better alternatives, but it, it requires less compromise with those that, that we're allegedly resisting. Yeah, I would also say this is actually one of the reasons uh, that uh, that you don't drive me crazy the way that you drive so many other people crazy, uh, which is that the the um, the um, the I've never sought to be like the to claim the mantle of the most left person in the room, and therefore the your challenging of the people who think that they are truly represent that position is um, something that makes them crazy, but doesn't make right. me crazy. Okay, so let's. Uh, turn to a question for you, um, which I guess should be um, about, I don't know, the about professional failure. Should I ask that question now? Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So, you uh, know. Oh, professional failure. There were, I mean, uh, a number. So I will start with um, something that may be interesting to our law student, which is that when I first applied for clerkships, I didn't get one. And it was only uh, kind of happened when someone had to skip out of they quit basically um, that uh, that I was able when I first applied for academic jobs I mostly struck out it was only kind of at the very end of the process that something uh, worked out I ended up at uh, George Mason um, uh, but um, it was uh, uh, I mean my career has been very very uh, you know very privileged and I've been very lucky and probably undeservedly so uh, but it's certainly pockmarked with variety of people looking at me like I was a lunatic so how about you Sam failures. Well, I, you know, I didn't, we just, you know, cover the fact that my whole career is a failure to date. So <laughs> no, I didn't, I, even I didn't no, no, say that's that. Fair. I, uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've always been, uh, you know, a- attempting to, you know, eke out noble defeats uh, in order to reserve positions and, and let them survive for a while. I mean, in more boring terms, like I, I, uh, got some, you know, outrageously bad law school grades, um, mainly because I generally use the exams to attack the, what I perceive to be the personal views of the instructor. And so I got a few. That always gets a great grade in my class. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's a great, it's a great thing to do. It's just that you, you skew high and low and I got a few good grades and then a lot of, you know, cause at Harvard, we, were graded and yes. and there were professors at least in my day and i'm sure a few years later in yours who would, we went to school two years apart okay like, fair so enough so <laughs> i mean who would give really low grades so i i even told my own students in human rights the other day that i got like the equivalent of a c uh in the class that i later ended up teaching there and have taught or i'm teaching at yale right now um <laughs> And then, yeah, no, I mean, I, I didn't even think of trying to become a, a law professor, but, um, you know, I would say I, I'm facing my inadequacies all the time. So it's, uh, 
I, I, I think that, uh, it's really important for, um, for us to kind of really, you know, check, check, you know, our self-regard and it's really useful to experience a lot of reversals. Otherwise you end up like some, you know, law professors I won't name who are, are so defined by their sense that they can do no wrong, that every word they have to utter is, you know, the thought of a genius. Uh, and that if you contradict them, you, you must be, you know, uh, and, and, you know, uh, an idiot. I, I think yeah, you, I completely you, agree. I also think listening to yourself do a podcast is uh, will uh, make you realize that you often sound ridiculous. Sure. It's a whole separate thing. Well, that's, you know, I don't, I, I have listened to other you people, listen, but yeah. not mine. <laughs> okay. I've got one for you. What is so special about the movie Metropolitan? You know, it's, it's, I think it's the script because neither you nor I come from the you know the, the social milieu in which this film yeah i come closer place. i grew up in new york city you, you, so, okay, so and went to private fair enough school, so like you went, a okay bit. fair enough um but not still quite. Not i quite. mean you know the the even i would say even you don't come near absolutely the, true. the social not milieu upper yes. upper west side I mean, Upper East Side wasps, et cetera, that where in which the film is set. So I think it's, you know, there's it, it reminds us that stories about particular people who are not us can still strive for universality. But I, I believe it's above all the script, just because you and I both find that, you know, any situation we're in, there's a line in the film that's relevant to it. Uh, and you know, we've used lines, you know, without citing over it over in this podcast, just on the fly. And so yeah. I, I, I think there are a few films like that and it's, it's one of the absolute best. So I would also say that it is like a kind of, uh, philosophically, uh, coherent in a way that movies often is like basically a sustained argument for conservatism through told through some mediocre but sophisticated students. And neither one of us are conservatives in any, I mean, really radically not in different directions, um, uh, not conservatives. But I think it, one of the things is that it's an important counterweight and something that we recognize. And um, um, uh, and so you see in the movie a really, what I think is a really uh, powerful argument uh, made, which you don't, I mean, but it's also funny. Um, uh, and, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, it is, uh, so I, it's terrific. And I, I mean, I think that, I think that first of all, I also think you can't, I mean, I love Metropolitan's movie, but it really, you really, it's the trilogy that really makes the whole thing work together because it's a sustained set of arguments across, uh, several movies. I mean, on the conservatism, is it, it is, is it more like Daniel Bell's perspective that it, it's a, a brief for a certain kind of cultural conservatism, Yeah, but that's right. you know. It, Not it, a political conservative. It, yeah. It's respectful of political socialism. Oh, um, absolutely. Although, I don't it, think it's you a, know, we all should, all socialists should recognize that it's a little bit ridiculous. Um, and that's how it's treated. And then it's politically liberal. So, I mean, I, yeah. I think uh, it, it's kind of more like Daniel Bell's version of conservatism. I, that's what I meant. I meant, I didn't, I meant it's not, it's a, it's, it's a cultural, I mean, not cultural conservative in like a, you know, sure. in a, Right, but in a in a in a, a get kind of skepticism about change, sort of, and way, a defense um, of reading or, Jane Austen, and you know that it's uh, it's and the and the, the difficult travails of a uh, of um of of being of being a uh, rich and living on the right. free side, in the, because anyway, even the um, privileged can have their own problems, and 
that's yeah. that's I think you really that's want an some important thing for guy some of saying us to poor recognize. Tom Townsend can't even afford a coat. Right. right. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Um, well, I think we're sort of nearing the end. I mean, there must be yeah, one more. So we've got one more. Um, uh, uh, who is the dream sponsor for the pod? Well, I mean, given what we've just discussed, I'd I'd love to you know, get Chris Eigeman or Whit Stillman, one of whom still follows me on Twitter and may not be that wealthy to sponsor a pod. Um, yeah, and the I mean, other my answer is, of course, who offers me. the most cash? Sorry? But I, I, I was, uh, whoever's the most, over, uh, who offers the most cash is the one I'm in favor of. But Fair no, the next Whit Stillman movie, I think is pretty obviously the uh, the right call here. It's uh, whatever his, it's his next movie. Um, if he would run ads on this, we'll run ads. We'll, we'll probably we'll probably pay him for the right to run ads on it. So Absolutely. It, it is, I mean, we should get him to, 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 to make an ad for this podcast. Oh my God, absolutely. Uh, it it's would a, be, it, what that would be a dream. It wouldn't be sponsorship, except you know, except in, in the other sense that like Nike sponsors athletes, we can sponsor Chris. I, th- I'm, I am, I'm a hundred percent in on that. So, um, with that, um, I want to thank you all for sending in your questions. There are a lot we couldn't get to, but, um, uh, it's, uh, this podcast has already gone on for a good bit. Um, and so we're going to stop there and this is the end of season three of, um, which we do by semester of of the pod and i just want to say what a what a what a blast i've had doing it and, and sharing all of this with you um and sharing with you sam um it's been um it's we've had a really i think this has been a really good set of episodes um and i'm really proud of them and so thank you so much sam for doing this with me right back at you